Hello and welcome to the K Voices podcast. This podcast follows the K Enterprise's mission to implement holistic solutions for security, environmental, and social problems. Through this podcast, K Enterprises and MI Cynic join forces to talk about today's areas of concern and present innovative solutions. Hello and welcome to another episode of K Voices. Today we are joined by two returning guests, Mr. Gracias Casongo and Mr. Elliot Wilson. We'll be talking about Afghanistan and about what it means to penetrate through the veil of a developing crisis right now in Afghanistan, a humanitarian crisis, a political crisis, a geopolitical crisis, a reputational crisis, and try to arrive some of the deeper truth and longer-term strategy that will be involved in uh, how we deal with Afghanistan as the West, but also as the world uh, in the next 10, 20 years. So to that end, I've invited Mr. Gracias Casonga, founder and CEO of K Enterprises, an international development and trade organization firm specializing in modernization, security, and infrastructure, as well as Mr. Elliot Wilson, author, journalist, broadcaster, and advisor working in strategy, PR, as well as commentator on politics and parliament. He's the co-founder of PivotPoint, a strategic advisory and PR consultancy, clerk in the House of Commons, serving on several select committees. Chief writer, then head of research for Right Angles, a London-based reputation management practice. Thank you both so much for joining me today, and I'm very excited to uh, to have this conversation on uh, what is most likely the the most pressing issue that uh, we're certainly dealing with today? Uh, I mean, we are bombarded almost by uh, different and highly concerning headlines every day. I, I, rather, I should say, every hour um, about the situation in Afghanistan. Ever since the uh, the speedy withdrawal of the NATO forces and uh, U.S. forces in, in the region. To that end, I've picked apart sort of uh, an anecdote to start us off today. It refers to the chancellor candidate for Germany's Christian Democrats, Mr. Armin Laschet. Mr. Armin Laschet has recently expressed concern over the damages to the transatlantic relationship by saying that he was disappointed by U.S. President Biden's announcement that he would implement Donald Trump's Afghanistan withdrawal order one-to-one without fully involving the allies in this momentous decision. So we can already see that there are transatlantic tensions that are being stoked by the speedy withdrawal of NATO forces and specifically the US forces. So what I'd like to put across to our panel today is, was this decision organized in a timely and appropriate manner? Because in a very recent press conference, US President Biden has insisted that his decision was the right one at the right time. It could not have been done sooner. What are you thinking, uh, Elliot? Let's start with you, and uh, maybe you can walk us through uh, how you see this. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, I think it's it's a very complex one to unpick because almost every time you try to consider the whole withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, last month, you say, but we need to take a step back. And then you say, but we need to take a step back. And before you know where you are, you're, you're in 2001 pre-conflict, really, and, and you're pre-9-11 almost, uh, before the, the Al-Qaeda attack on, on New York and Washington. It's very clear that the Americans had reached a decision by last year that they were going to withdraw combat troops uh, in their entirety from Afghanistan. And that was never going to be easy. Um, you know, th- there was always going to come a point at which the Americans had to step back and the Afghan National Security Forces, such as they were at the time, were going to have to step forward. Now, I think for me, one of the big questions is how the West, how NATO and its allies got so badly wrong their estimation of the capability of the Afghan forces to that gap. Because only a few weeks ago, we were being told by intelligence sources that Kabul would perhaps last until the end of the year before falling to the Taliban, it might even hold for 18 months. And so this gap in which NATO, the US and others would be able to withdraw their troops would be a reasonably substantial one, one in which things could be done in an orderly manner and uh, not in a, a sense of unsteepening haste. 
what we know now is that that gap during which the Afghan forces would stand up was virtually non-existent. It was a sense of the Americans withdrew to Kabul, they withdrew to uh, Hamid Karzai Airport at Kabul, and the Taliban were effectively at the, the gates of the airport controlling access to and from the airport. Now, I think by the time you got to that situation, we're already in a, in a bad place. I think there are a couple of decisions which were made, which I think need to be picked apart a little bit. The first, it seems to me, is the decision by the Americans to abandon Bagram Air Base, which was their major combat hub for operations in Afghanistan, and which was defensible and could perhaps have been used as a more secure hub for evacuation than, than Hamid Karzai Air. And it seems to me extraordinary that the Americans left Bagram literally overnight and didn't tell the Afghans that they were going. I mean, you know, having spoken to, to various people, literally the Afghan troops woke up the morning afterwards and the Americans, oh, they didn't know where, but they had just disappeared. The other thing I think was that once you've had that bad decision made and once you're concentrating on, on the civilian airport at, at Kabul, the Americans, decision to get everybody out as quickly as possible and uh, to do so while saying to the Taliban effectively, you know, please let us go was understandable. But I think the, the signal it sends made it clear if they didn't already know to the Taliban that they were very much in control even before the Americans had left. So I think what we see to, to be uh, concise after rather a, a, an expository explanation is that what the Americans did was allow themselves to get into a situation where they were withdrawing from the wrong place, they were withdrawing too quickly, and they were withdrawing essentially to someone else's timetable. They were withdrawing according to the timetable dictated by the Taliban, whether or not that was in accordance with the deal done with President Trump last year. They weren't setting their own conditions. They were asking for permission from the Taliban, and I think that's very telling, and I think that will really be one of the, the memories we take away from couple 2021. I mean, uh, Elliot, I, I, I thank you for your contributions in regards to that. And again, Thomas, thank you for having us here. We're always uh, delighted to come here together and and, and share what we're seeing and obviously certain concerns. Um, it's a very good question. And uh, of course, we have to answer this question very carefully because obviously it's a very sensitive geopolitical matter. And uh, what, I, what, what, what I'm going to say in regards to this is actually the way the Taliban has operated recently is very suspicious. The Taliban are not that organized. Uh, I mean, they are organized, but not that organized. Uh, it was way too uh, uh, it was way too rapid. Uh, I would say that the the way things were orchestrated was very strategic. I mean, uh, I want to kind of simplify what I'm trying to say here is. We all know, and obviously, uh, that the, the Taliban, they must have had certain support to have access to such arms, uh, such capabilities. Uh, not to be too specific on, as to where they got that support from, but it's very evident that support, uh, they, they got support. If you look at the way they, they've operated, uh, they've operated in a way that was very uh, uh, strategic, in a way that it enabled them to dominate and, and not only dominate the hearts and minds of the of, of, of any form of resistance in Afghanistan, uh, but also it caused a scenario where uh, we had to, uh, use the term, simplify again, speed up the process of leaving Afghanistan as fast as possible. This tells me several things that uh, on a, on a political level, that there are proxy, proxy activities occurring, funded by specific uh, uh, governments to actually uh, uh, influence the status quo. So in a nutshell, uh, everything that we're seeing, a lot of us in the news are focusing on the fact that the NATO alliances are actually leaving, and look how they're leaving. But then the question I ask is actually, why is there such a focus on that? And why are we not talking enough about, you know, you know, the Taliban and how they've been so strategic in pushing this forward? It's not normal. The Taliban are not that sophisticated. They're not that organized. You need to have a lot of funds to do that. You need to have a lot of 
resources, like resources in terms of manpower, uh, you know, command. I'm talking about this is this is a whole operation that is so well orchestrated that you can even sit, make a movie out of this. It's way too perfect. So, uh, so let's kind of pause and look at what happened in terms of the evacuation. The deadline that was set. I mean, we all know that you know eventually this this would have happened. Uh, the time frame as to when this would occur, uh, regardless of any administration, I think it was already in 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 from the NATO point of view, from the U.S. and allies, uh, uh, the ambition to find a way to get out of this, you know, leave leave Afghanistan as 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 smoothly as possible, and this is why, you know, the big focus was to equip, train, and create a scenario where they became less reliant on on NATO support. Uh, I think I think from uh, 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 from a military standpoint, the Afghan, the Afghan army felt pretty much empowered when they had Western alliance support from Air Force uh, support. You know, they knew that, hey, you know, if we're stuck and we're in trouble and, and uh, you know, they're going to send the Air Force. But in this scenario, they realized that, well, that support's not going to be there. Can we really be as effective? Uh, and, and I guess... What I'm trying to say is behind the scenes, what happened was there was a lot of spread of information. Pretty much what the Taliban said is, you know, we have all these capabilities. Uh, we outnumber you. We're going to hurt you. Or you choose, if you choose, to, if you don't choose to bring, you know, drop your arms and just, uh, you know, or join us, well, we're going to hurt you guys. We know exactly who you are. We know where you live. Uh, if you trust and believe that the NATO alliances will actually support you, you're going to make a big mistake. But the reality behind the scenes is there's been a lot of activities. Now, if you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, you correlate to what happened recently in Iraq, you see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and if you look back about uh, not too long ago, not to be too specific, when um, you know uh, Iran, Iran was attacked, uh, you know the commander in question, uh, the assassination of one of the commanders, or their main commander, you can see what's happened. They promised to fight back promised to get back to us. They promised that there will be consequences. And now we see this. There's a pattern. There's definitely a pattern. I think the pattern is interesting because uh, what's happened in Iraq, uh, they would go and actually uh, win the hearts of Iraqis by saying, hey, look, we'll fight ISIS with you. Uh, I also want to talk later on about ISIS-K and, and also uh, uh, briefly on what's happened, obviously, why the Taliban are actually approaching things a bit differently and seemingly a bit more diplomatic, which is quite suspicious as well. So that's where I want to kind of touch base, but we'll, we'll expand upon this, of course. Back to you, Thomas. Yes, I think, I think that's a, it's a great point, and it's something I wanted to talk about. It's uh, Iran and China and Russia and um, Afghanistan's neighbors. Because you're right, Gracias, there has been uh, reports and there have been commentators that have been speaking about uh, just exactly what you've mentioned, that there is, there's no way an operation like this could have been as successful and as fast and as uh, strategic and precise as it was uh, without some significant support. And uh, Iran and Russia, in fact, have been building relationships with the Taliban apparently over many years. Uh, they've been providing ground support uh, on different occasions. And, uh, of course, we know that uh, China or rather Chinese officials, have been meeting with counterparts of the Taliban. But where I am not so sure is how we how we define this, uh, what narrative we choose to employ here. Because you could also make the argument that rather than this being an anti-US operation, although it certainly could be, this could also be just politics uh, as usual, real politic, especially by regimes that uh, obviously have no particular fondness for democracy and uh, who may or may not share uh, the Taliban's uh, religious convictions, but certainly um, are open to business as usual and, uh, and must get on with its neighbors, whether it likes it or not. China has the Uyghur minority, its own uh, religious uh, minorities in its own country. Iraq and Iran might have their own agendas, and they might need to shake hands with the Taliban one way or another. So this is something that I was always confused by, is, you know, are we splitting hairs in trying to define this one way or another? Can it be both at the same time? 
Is it business as usual for the neighbors of Afghanistan? Or are we fundamentally in for a, a period by which the United States will say, if you deal with the Taliban, uh, you know, we're not dealing with you? How, how do you see that, uh, Gracias? Yeah, good question. Um, I really love how the way Elliot actually responded to the previous question, because there's definitely a correlation uh, as to what's happening behind the scenes on, on, a, on a military and political level. So to answer your question more adequately, uh, Thomas, um, let's kind of look at what's happening with China. So China is obviously scared that there will be a spillover. They don't want a spillover of, of forces, uh, you know, terrorist groups uh, going to China. And obviously you've mentioned certain names. Uh, and that indeed is a big concern for them. Uh, in the same token, they have a certain economic agendas they want to push forward. If you look at it uh, strategically, they have their agendas. They want to push their agendas. Those agendas do affect Western interests. So, you know, there's always there's always a need to come back to the to the to the negotiating table and make sure that everything is accordingly. You look at Russia, Russia's the same scenario. They don't want to spill over. In the same token, Russia wants to prove a point. And sure, and actually, if you look at, for example, and I'm gonna kind of be generic at this point here, is you know, there's a saying the enemy of my enemy is is, is my ally kind of thing. So in this scenario, you know, they, they see an opportunity generally that you know, the West has shown weakness in their opinion. So they want to now show the world that, hey, look, look at the mess they're doing. Do you really trust the West? Look how they've managed this. Can you trust them as allies? And using that as a great tool to now um, strengthen their, their main agendas. And that's what's happening uh, in a generic sense in that area. The concern is real when they, 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 because they, they are aware, for example, in terms of China, for example, that if they don't improve relations with the Taliban and with what's going on in their in domestically. Uh, and we're very aware of what's happening domestically. You know, from the Chinese point of view, they believe that they need to be extremely aggressive against uh, 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 Islamic extremism. And the way they don't think it's quite, don't think it's quite, it's quite dramatic, I would say. But again, that's, that's out there for an opinion out there. Russia, in the same token, they're actually uh, carefully uh, strategically, they've always seen Afghanistan as a, as, a, as a place of interest because obviously historically uh, they have been humiliated by the wars, uh, the, the previous war. Uh, and what they want to do is actually, you know, show that, hey, look, we failed. It's the, you guys came and tried to do that. Well, guess what? You guys failed too. It's what they want to, do, want to show. And we want to show the world that, hey, look, you know, they're not, they're not as powerful as, as they are. The reality is actually we all know that uh, the mission was completed for Afghanistan a long time ago. Uh, the intent was to go and find Osama bin Laden uh, and actually to uh, uh, pretty much disband, uh, uh, destroy Al-Qaeda and actually disband the Taliban. Uh, the, the reality is actually the Taliban, if you look at the, the Taliban and their behaviors beforehand, obviously they, they do have some very extreme, extreme uh, uh, views and actually uh, in terms of the way they, their, their, their version of Islam is, it is quite extreme. Uh, and I think uh, I dare to say that the, 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 this phase here is kind of like an observation phase to see, are they still going to be the same Taliban of 2001 or are they going to be a new Taliban that's, going, that's become much more uh, aware that you know, the old practices don't work. You're going to fail if you do that. And you can see in terms of uh, the way they're talking about uh, uh, ways to encourage Individuals, and you guys know I'm very, very cautious in my language, of course. Uh, ways in which individuals are leaving the country in 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 in, in masses, they're very scared of that. They're, they're, they feel that there's a there's a wave of of talents leaving the country, and they want to find ways to keep them, and and in any, in any shape or form. So, but if you look at the body language, uh, you know, they have the go to behind the scenes to these uh, um, news platforms with. Uh, persons holding rifles and intimidating, uh, uh, you know, speakers. It's uh, very strategic. We want to make sure that certain things are not out there. Now, I will explain in detail certain, certain aspects that we need to be aware, but it's important to remember that from a Russian point of view, they're thinking strategically. Uh, the reality is that uh, Russia can, does not have the budget, the, the will to actually engage in another war. So uh, obviously from their end, they're thinking, okay, well, Taliban are going to be there. That's how they're seeing it. Let's kind of find ways to actually uh, show them that we, we have no beef, no, no problem, no, no enmity. As long as you guys keep the peace, we're cool. China's the same way. They're like, hey, look, you know, 
they actually wanted us to stay there because you know we were we became like a buffer <laughs> to 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 prevent a, an overspill. Uh, Elliot, over to you. What are you thinking? Thanks, gracias. I, I think what you're you're saying is is very interesting and absolutely on the money. I think really to understand the the way that both U.S. and more widely NATO presence has has unfolded in Afghanistan. You do have to go right back to the beginning because when we, as NATO, invaded Afghanistan in late 2001, it was specifically and directly in response to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. It was NATO activating Article 5 of its charter, which says that an attack on one member state is an attack on all member states. And so NATO as an alliance responded to those terrorist attacks, um, of which the 20th anniversary is, is coming up very soon. And it invaded, wait, well, it put troops into Afghanistan, firstly to defeat the Taliban, who had been harboring Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, or widely, and secondly to root out Al-Qaeda. And as you say, those two things were achieved, and they were achieved very quickly. Uh, the Taliban were more or less militarily beaten by the end of 2001, and Al-Qaeda were pretty much out of Afghanistan by the end of 2003. Now, that's 18 years ago. And I think ever since that point, what the West has failed to do, what the Americans have failed to do, and I think what we as perhaps their, their next most senior partner in NATO have failed to do, is provide a coherent and credible reason for our being there. Because if it wasn't, as Joe Biden is now saying, nation building, uh, then, then what was it about? Why have we spent 18 years there after achieving our military goals? I think, of course, actually, there was some degree of nation building. What we wanted to do was to establish uh, a roughly liberal democratic state in Kabul uh, with, with which we could deal in the way with which we deal with ordinary states. And I think it was also a degree of clientism in that we wanted a, a state which would be our ally in that critical part of the region. But there were other narratives thrown into it. There was a time in the mid-2000s, I suppose, around 2005-06, when there was a lot of talk about eradication of the heroin trade from Afghanistan, because 95% of, of the world's heroin comes from uh, the, the poppy harvest in Afghanistan. And so for a while, we ran with the idea that if heroin is a scourge on Western society, which a lot of people think it is, then stop this at source. And I can remember politicians saying, if we don't do it here, we do it on our streets at home. And so why not? you know, cut it off at source. Of course, what we realised then was that that was destroying the income of most Afghan farmers, so that wasn't viable. Then we transformed it into a narrative about women's rights. Um, now, that's a very, very good thing to fight for, and in a sense, we've been very successful. You know, back in 2001, there were literally no women in schools in Afghanistan because the Taliban didn't allow it. Um, I think by the time that Kabul fell last month, it was something like 40% of, of school children were, were female, which is getting there, and which is a tremendous change. But I don't think anyone in the public in the US or the UK signed up to a 20-year war in 2001 to advance women's rights in Afghanistan. Um, it may be a nice thing to have done while we're there, but it clearly couldn't be our guiding principle. So I think all along, we've been looking for a reason we're there. And I think towards the end, the reason became because we were there. And I think that kind of self-perpetuating argument can never really work. And so it was, it was entirely understandable that at some point we would seek to get out because happening, you know, if you look at Afghanistan a year ago, that clearly wasn't success. So we were faced with the choice of continuing perhaps until 2040, 2060, what we're doing now, with very, very low casualties, minimal commitment, but still a commitment there we pull out or we reinforce. And that, that was clearly not something that people had any political uh, will for. So I think we now need to be a bit more hard-headed, as you were both saying, talking about realpolitik, and see Afghanistan in a way, uh, in the same way that others see it, because Russia has a very coherent approach to what it calls the near abroad, which is a kind of Russian version of the Monroe Doctrine, I suppose. China is very much committed to its Belt and Road expansion policy, and Afghanistan fits very easily into that. Uh, Pakistan, of course, has its own particular uh, approach to Afghanistan. But we have to remember that Pakistan is sitting on the border of Afghanistan, but on the other side, it has a nuclear-armed India. So it's got a lot of issues to, to deal with. And then on the other side of Afghanistan, you have Iran, who are essentially 
fighting a proxy war for control of the Muslim Middle East with Saudi Arabia. And they're doing that in uh, Lebanon, in Gaza, uh, in lots of different places. So I think we need now to be much more clear-eyed about our approach to Afghanistan now that we have taken our people out. And actually, the question may be, is that part of the world really our strategic interest at all? I think from a UK point of view, it's not clear that it is. The Americans, with their more global ambitions and their more global reach, may take a different view. But I think from a UK point of view, we now need to ask if we've learned anything from our uh, experience in Afghanistan, and this is our third Afghan war, remember, we started back in the 1830s, um, have we learned anything from that? And is one of the lessons actually that we shouldn't be there at all? Actually, uh, Elliot, I'm glad you said that. Actually, um, I, I, I knew I knew from the bottom of my heart you're going to bring that up, and, I, and, and it's, it's as if we're candid spirits. Candid spirits. Uh, the, the, the point of interest, uh, you're right, because uh, we never wanted to be there for long. I mean, the intent was to go in, solve that problem, and come out. Uh, however, uh, over time, behind the scenes, certain developments started to, to surface, and we needed to be there a bit longer. And uh, yes, you talked about the issues of drugs, which is obviously a big issue. Obviously, they, they are the, lar- the lar- among the largest suppliers uh, around the world. And, and it's, it, it was something we thought, okay, well, if we tackle this from the ground, we're obviously issues coming back domestically. But I dare to say there was actually more behind the scenes. Uh, I, I, th- I think uh, on a Western point of view, we, we saw that. Uh, stabilizing that part of the world that reach would actually enable us to be more secure in the long run. Uh, because uh, from, uh, from a strategic point, I think we also saw threats from other countries or neighboring countries. Uh, let's not forget also that the souring relationship with Pakistan was occurring during that phase as well. Uh, and uh, it, it made it really difficult. Now, now, if you look what's happening with Pakistan, Pakistan has actually become much more friendlier with, with, with the likes of countries such as China and Russia as well. So that that now puts you know Western alliance uh, alliances puts us in a situation where we're thinking, well, what do we do now? Um, and obviously, if you look at the history of the way we tackled the, uh, terrorism, um, we've learned a lot of lessons over the years. Um, and obviously, over time, we started to shift our approach to dealing with terrorism. Uh, but the mess that we some of the mess and the mistakes with me, we had to find ways to rectify that and clean it up. So. To simplify the message, we 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 have to save it for a little while and 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 make sure that 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 where where we got it wrong, we fixed it, and where we got it right, we continued. So where the whole initiative to improve, uh, you know, infrastructure was a big call, winning the hearts and minds was a big call. And I, I think as an initiative, it was, it was very smart and very important. But I do agree that actually it, it, we came to a point of exhaustion. We realized, okay, well, we've been here for a long time. We need to start thinking of an exit strategy. And meanwhile, whilst a lot of operations were happening on the ground, obviously other governments were actually monitoring military tactics and trying to understand how we operate and so forth and try to replicate these, these, these tactics and so forth. Uh, and whilst we were focusing so much on the Middle East, they were focusing on other parts of uh, other areas of interest. And, we, you know, you look at what's happening in Ukraine and also in the Pacific. So there's a whole pattern of what's been going on. Uh, to finalize this part here, did you, did you Thomas, if you have your question, uh, I, th- I think when I look at it, and, and the question is not, you know, is it business, is it politics as usual, or business as usual? Uh, realistically, yes and no. Uh, yes, in one area, I'd say that, for example, if it is everybody's interest to ensure that we understand what's happened, has happened, we're, we're going to leave. Actually, it's happened already. Um, and yes, of course, the, the, the Belt Initiative is what they want to push forward. They, they, they're very adamant, and at the same token, uh, agreements behind the scenes have been going on between the Taliban and actually uh, Chinese Chinese uh, government. And the same token with uh, Russian Russian uh, government. They want to make sure that uh, you know they solidify relationships. Let's not forget how rich Afghanistan is. Afghanistan is really rich. It's not a poor country. I mean, if you look at what's happening in terms of in terms of you know infrastructure, yes, it's it's it needs a, it's poor, but in terms of raw minerals, yes, rich. Were we there for raw minerals? No, we weren't. We had other areas of you know, countries that we acquired the same minerals and so forth. So there should be no illusion for that. Uh, 
the reality is, that, and finally, of course, in this area, we, we had to find a way to exit. And there was no way to exit in a completely, um, in a way that would be so smooth that, you know, there'd be no, if it, there, I've, I've had feedback from, from uh, folks who, who, who are disappointed that things happened the way it happened. They said well, a lot of, they believe, believe a lot of Afghan, Afghan friends uh, are, have been left behind and they feel that they failed them. But in the same token, uh, the reality is actually that this was already going to happen. I think the timing, uh, from a U.S. standpoint, I think Trump, what he wanted to do was actually to, uh, Trump was quite excited, I would say. He really wanted to show that, hey, look, I'm fulfilling my agenda, I'm fulfilling my promise to the American people, and I'm going to push us forward and so forth. Uh, when, when Biden came along, he had to take on this, you know, take on the, bear in mind, this is months of negotiations, months of agreements, months of planning. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're the, you're the new administration, you, you're dealing with the, the mess of the former administration, which was quite a mess. Globally, if you look what happened, it, uh, Trump did a lot of good things and a lot of bad, well, made a lot of poor decisions. That's the reality. Uh, and if you look at it uh, realistically, the NATO alliances have been quite fragile. And COVID-19 has affected as well, most of the NATO alliances. I mean, everybody is going through recovery right now. Can we afford another war? Could we, we didn't have, we don't have the same resources as we used to all the time. We, we, we had to cut, cut down these costs. And the question that everybody's been thinking about is can we still be in this kind of long-term war? The reality is actually, no, we don't want to, this financially it costs a fortune. This finance can be now directed to other, other areas. And right now, as you know, Steve, if you look at the language, the big focus now is we're moving slightly away from, from Afghanistan, so it's focused on other areas. And that's what's going on in the Western uh, side of things. I take your point, uh, Gracias, and I think you are right in sporting out that it was never going to be smooth sailing whilst we were in there. And it most certainly was not going to be smooth sailing getting out of there. And I agree that it might be naive to think, oh, you know, if things had been a, a little bit different here or there, or policy had been there, there, we would have been, you know, smooth sailing out. And I think it, it, there were always some hard truths that were going to hit home, whether we liked it or not. And I think this is the um, the conclusion of those hard truths. Um, but actually, I think in many ways, the uh, it's it's good to see the difference between now and perhaps twenty years ago is that the world has come to understand uh, fundamentally that whether we like it or not, this is the way things are going to be in Afghanistan, and that whether it's not not worth it because of time or money or energy or political will or whatever you have it, the world has come to accept bombing Afghanistan and another 20-year war is not going to be the answer. So in that respect, I think there actually has been some maturity in the political discourse. But in other ways, I'd say that we are still very much where we were 20 years ago. And specifically, I think this refers to how we, or at the very least, prominent news and media outlets see Afghanistan. Because one thing that you mentioned just now, Gracias, about the mineral wealth of Afghanistan is interesting. And I think certainly the the popular misrepresentation of Afghanistan might very well be a country that is uh, extremely backwards, remote, poor, rural, whenever you have it. And while certainly some of this may indeed be true, there's another story to Afghanistan I was shocked recently uh, when doing some research for this podcast uh, when I found that Afghanistan's population today is nearly 40 million people. That's more than Canada, where I'm staying at the moment. Uh, and this, and fundamentally, this is really interesting. Compare that to what it was at the year 2000, which is 20 million, half as much. That's a rate of nearly 1 million per year in population change. And around half of all of that, of the population today is under 15 years of age. So at least in as far as populations going and life expectancy as well, uh, Afghanistan's population is booming. And that's a major metric that we're gonna to have to look at when we look at the economic uh, opportunities that might await Afghanistan in the future. So 
So I'm interested in this, actually. Despite the headline, the bombastic headlines, do the numbers tell a different story? Afghanistan, far from being a basket case, is it actually a country poised for quite a lot of economic success, or at least growth? And when we're talking about Russia and China that we've mentioned uh, before in this conversation, are they poised much better than the United States and the United Kingdom and whatever else? to capitalize on that young market that is going to soon be demanding education, food, power, infrastructure, security, jobs, opportunities, and all the other necessities of modern life. Um, how do you see the futures playing out? Who will be the one to provide their needs and who wins out of that, Elliot? Thank you, Thomas. I think you, you identify a very interesting point because across the world, if you look at population growths and, and demographic bulges, uh, the older dwindling societies are those in what we call the West, not necessarily geographically the West, because of course Japan is, is one of the, the most badly affected by an aging population who are living longer, are uh, therefore having a, a longer non-productive stage of their life and are, are having much bigger implications on, on care and resources. Uh, the same is true, I think, in South Korea. Uh, and in, in Western Europe and in the US, population growth is slowing and we are living longer and we're having fewer children. I think Italy has actually gone into population decline because the birth rate is now uh, overall below zero. Um, so I think it's an interesting setup because what you do see is not only in countries like Afghanistan, but in a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, you see booming young populations in places like Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. Um, and these are obviously the potential markets for enormous economic growth. And so that does, to an extent, provide huge opportunities, both internally and externally, because there are clearly, to take Afghanistan as the exact uh, example here, there are huge amounts of, uh, of demand which are going to appear in Afghanistan sooner or later, which Afghanistan itself cannot currently uh, supply. And clearly that's going to be done under the guidance of an outside influence, whether that's China, whether whether that's Russia, whether that's Pakistan, or whether that's some kind of Western coalition, or whether that's a, a, a Shia coalition led by Iran. The interesting thing, I think, is that again and again, if you look around the world, you see that booming economies uh, create demand for education, as you said, which I think is, is clearly going to take a hit in Afghanistan under the current regime. Uh, it... Uh, it leads to demands for all sorts of luxuries, but it also leads to fundamentally a demand for some kind of democratic engagement. Now, we don't need to be talking about an exact platonic or Madisonian democracy uh, like the one in, in Washington, D.C., but economic growth, economic wealth leads to an inexorable demand for some kind of public engagement in the decision-making process. And you see that in uh, in parts of Africa, you see that in parts of Asia, uh, you're seeing that in Singapore, and you're going to see that in Afghanistan, that will happen. Now, the issue then uh, becomes at what point does it happen? You know, is it when the population is 50 million, 55 million, when they've started exporting lithium or when they started generating some other form of, of exportable wealth? When that happens, does the Taliban then say, OK, well, we'll alter our social, cultural policies and approach to accommodate this new growth? Or does it say, well, no, unfortunately, the, the designs of the outside world are not relevant because we are following the Quran, which is the immaculate word of, of, uh, of Allah, and is, you know, was written down in the seventh century. And, and we, you know, that's, <laughs> I was going to say, that's our Bible, obviously, it kind of is, but kind of isn't. Um, but, it, you know, there is an interpretation of, of Islam, which says that the Quran is not there for adaptability through market circumstances. So the Taliban, sooner or later, if they are still in power, if there isn't a civil war which displaces them, are going to be faced with a proposition whereby they either do something which would be against their fundamental nature uh, and in which will bring them into conflict with most of their population, or uh, they somehow... Uh, 
are simply replaced by some other group which is more able to feed that desire for uh, self-control, for uh, individual power and sovereignty and accessibility to some kind of leaders of democratic institutions in a burgeoning economy, which happens the time and time and time again. Uh, Elliot, that, that is that is very interesting and, and you're spot on because um, it, it, that definitely explains a pattern of why uh, Iran is heavily interested in, in in Afghanistan, I mean, let's not let's not forget again. Just to recap: the Taliban has a lot of support. You know, they they're not. It's not like uh, they they have a lot of support, guys. So so what's happening is that uh, from an Iranian point of view, they understand that if they continue to support the the Taliban, uh, uh, then what happens is that uh, they have a mutual enemy that they feel that they can actually say, "Hey, look, you know, was we, we no problem here." We just want to, you know, improve relations in any way we can. Uh, any results, you know, economically, we'll do some great things together and so forth. Uh, the the concern from the Iranian government obviously is Saudi Arabia. The thing inside a box, they're like, you know what? If we keep on pushing this forward, we're going to have uh, the upper hand. The Saudis are saying the same thing. They're like, well, in the same token, the Saudis want to dis- have tried their best to distance themselves as much as possible from ISIS. Uh, and the ISIS-K branch that's come out of this, uh, they're kind of like, uh, how can I say, uh, uh, trying to use a term that's going to be quite useful in, in a sense, is uh, picture a, a rookie that comes out of a, a, a group and they just want to build a name for themselves. Uh, that's ISIS-K in a nutshell. They're just trying to build a name for themselves and try to show that, hey, look, we, we, we support uh, the, the Islamic State we're not weakened, even though we've been hit hard, they're saying to themselves, and trying to echo that. I mean, we're still, we're still capable. Uh, but realistically, uh, the challenge the Saudi government has, and just speaking generically and not too specific, is that most of these, uh, the finance that groups uh, such as these uh, acquire from, from private organizations within Saudi Arabia. So, you know, they, they have limited control in, some, in most cases. So then what happens is we, we can't really completely blame their government. So this is your fault. Uh, the Saudis go, whoa, you know, we're, we're trying our best here. The Saudis have a vested interest to maintain positive relationships with us, the West, because it, this is always a win-win for them. Uh, they have no interest in, in damaging that in any shape or form. And, and, and if any ways, they, they try their best to be as deployed. They try to support, say, hey, look, we, we, do, we do our best to help. But uh, and, and even ISIS, uh, they like to keep themselves a bit isolated from from the Saudis and say, "Hey, look, you know what? They, they're not the true. Uh, they don't follow the true Quran." So there is there is a lot behind the scenes on that end. So touching base on you know the economic factors. Yeah, uh, the reality is actually, uh, and I spoke to uh, one of our, our, our contacts even in Turkey to find out what's going on. The, the threat and the fear is that. Is that there will be the you know uh, an immigration crisis? So yes, these are high numbers, but it's uh, what we're noticing is that people are still leaving. They're afraid. They're afraid to stay in Afghanistan. They believe that it's not safe. They don't trust the promises of the uh, the Taliban. They believe that these promises have been made before, and it's only a cycle. Uh, the Taliban also, because of they're receiving a lot of support, are trying to uh, appease. Uh, and they even have said to their, 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 their peers, do not attack any U.S. or Western allies. If you attack them, there will be consequences. We want to make sure that they leave peacefully, leave any Western alliances, leave them alone, don't touch them. Uh, and uh, they're trying to show themselves as well-behaved and well-mannered. But realistically, they have an agenda, and the, the agenda they're trying to push forward is strategic. They know that if they succeed to establish stability in, in, in Afghanistan, they will now gain support, continued support from China and Russia and so forth. Uh, they under, and from, from a Chinese point of view, the Chinese, they did try to shrug their shoulders and say, hey, look, we just, you know, we just want to do business. You know, if, 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 if this allows us to do business, we got no problem. I'm simplifying the language. Uh, but from a, a Russian point of view, at the same token, China's also saying, hey, long, as long as you don't bother us with uh, the spillover of, of terrorist groups trying to, I know that we're doing our own thing here. We're trying to fight terrorism in our own way. Don't, don't touch our business. In the same token, Russians are doing the same thing. Um, 
there, 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 there is a kind of like a proxy uh, conflict happening. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things happening in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan has become like the, the hot spot for to, to win the hearts and minds. From a Western point of view, uh, we wanted to ensure that we exit it in a way that was uh, smooth enough. We believed, we believed with all our hearts, we believed that the Afghan army was capable to cope with, with was capable. We equipped them, we trained them. Uh, uh, on a Western point of view, we gave them everything we believe would enable them to be uh, secure enough. Uh, and this, the, 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 the challenge, if you look at Afghanistan as, as, as a nation, is, is highly divided, very divided, very divided, you know, and um, very tribal. So uniting a nation under one banner was not easy. Uh, especially when certain groups say, oh, we don't like you because you don't, you don't pray the way we pray. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really, and you have a lot of, uh, um, uh, a lot of individuals who have a lot of uh, stake, it's the, 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 a lot of power. Uh, they have small groups in their own armies and uh, they don't, they, they, allegiances, allegiances and so forth. So it's very difficult to control a nation or to build a nation like that. It's very difficult. It's not just throwing money. It's, it's 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 cultural dynamic. I think the challenge we had when we came to Afghanistan, we were really in a hurry to to fight back and just to, to to send a clear message that hey, you t- you touch us is pretty much warfare. Let me pick up on that. Uh, pick your brains on that, Gracias, for a second, because I think that uh, now we're sort of merging into um, another topic, which is trying to understand the Taliban, which is sometimes a difficult thing for perhaps some of our, our viewers today to wrap their heads around is you know, how, how do we explain the what you've just said uh, a moment ago about how how much support the Taliban has uh, because that's the undeniable truth here by which the rest of it makes any sense it's it, it has to have support um, to have a two-week uh, victory against uh, um, an Afghan forces that we spent 20 years building so how, how on earth do you explain that well a lot of that would might come down to popular support and a lot of that might come down to the composition of Afghanistan as, as you said uh, Afghanistan is a country with a lot of different uh, Groups and uh, tribes and uh, and ethnicity. I think over fourteen ethnicities and uh, many languages. Afghanistan is a is a complex nation, geographically, politically, ethnically, uh, racially, uh, religiously, a lot of different things. And to understand the Taliban, we have to understand that fundamental part of them. Not only is it a homegrown local movement that the regime installed after the US invasion may not have been seen that way. Uh, But it also uses, rightly or wrongly, religion as the binding agent between all of those ethnicities that might very well be at each other's throats otherwise. And and that may go some ways into explaining why they, they have this support. But I feel like this line of trying to understand the Taliban is sadly lacking, uh, at least from from my perspective, in a lot of Western media and, and the reporting that's going on today. And it leads to a lot of questions that I was hoping to ask either of you today, because they're so hard <laughs> to get outside of podcasts like this where we can indulge in these topics. For example, is uh, Taliban's uh, of today equal to the 2001's Taliban? I think, Gracias, you had raised the question earlier. It's a great question. Um, and certainly, I'm also interested in uh, whether that is the case or not. What is going on in the Western media that we uh, often choose to portray the Taliban in nothing other than a demonized light? Is that right or wrong? And does that prevent us from also trying to understand, okay, why did they get this level of popular support um, because surely they need to be doing something right uh, <laughs> to have had the stunning uh, successes, if you will call them that, or certainly the rapid uh, victories that they have had. So, Elliot, how do you, how do you make sense of that uh, conundrum, if you will? I think it's very interesting, Thomas, because I think we, we treat the Taliban through the lens of our media in two very different ways. Uh, neither of which is particularly helpful, but both of which come together to make it even more unhelpful. On the one hand, I think we take a very simplistic view, which is that, you know, these guys driving around in in pickup trucks with AK-47s are incapable of any kind of 
political or strategic thought that must basically be bandits and thugs and there's no way they can control a country like Afghanistan. And I think what we've seen during the collapse of, of the, uh, the Ghani regime over the past few weeks and months is that the Taliban are more than capable of understanding how uh, great power politics play out, how to press their advantage, how to hold back, and how to negotiate, albeit indirectly, with, with big players like the US and, and NATO. I think they have quite a sophisticated understanding of, of the pressure that they were able to put on NATO. And uh, I think it's it's been interesting to see some of the the sort of social media presence they have because you know being no doubt these guys are on social media there will be somebody whose job is tweeting for the Taliban now that sounds ridiculous but there will be somebody there will be lots of people out there and you know there are there are groups in this country uh, who are working to to deny that the, the Taliban and other extremists are a space on the internet and they do some tremendous work but you know. The Taliban are perfectly sophisticated. They know as much as, and I mean this in a very good way, the average Western teenager about how to use uh, social media presence, how to develop short but easily branded concepts, all of that kind of thing. So on the one hand, we treat the Taliban a bit like they're, they're sort of yokels and and medieval throwbacks. But on the other hand, we sometimes, I think, trip over our own sophistication because with the Taliban and with other confessedly Islamist groups, um, ISIS-K, as, as Gracias mentioned, being one of them, you know, when, when a group like that says we want to create a worldwide caliphate and uh, impose Sharia law on, on the whole population of the world, there is a temptation by the Western media to say, yes, but what do they mean? And you think, no, they mean exactly what they just said. They want a worldwide caliphate with Sharia law. They're not, this isn't a joke. This isn't uh, a sort of um, ironic way of saying something else. They've said precisely what they want, and that's what they intend to try to achieve. And so I think sometimes we try to look behind uh, the veil, if you like, if it's not an unfortunate uh, metaphor. Um, and we, we sort of pull away all the veils until there's no meaning left, because we're assuming that must be something essentially in our own shape underneath to which we can relate, whereas actually we may have thrown away the truth for the simple reason that it didn't look enough like us. Yeah, and actually, uh, Elliot, you're spot on. Actually, if we look a bit at the history of the, the Taliban, and it's very important to kind of distinguish uh, the Taliban from Al-Qaeda in terms of the specific, specific uh, let's not forget that the Taliban was actually um, founded by Mohammed uh, Omar, uh, Realistically, around 1984, uh, and actually, the Taliban gained rep. The Taliban, if you kind of look at historically, and even even before that, before they really got a name for themselves out there, um, they they came at a, at a time frame where, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was dominant. Uh, you know, the, 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 the you know the Soviet Union was there. They, the, the Afghan people felt oppressed. They felt that they were, here was a, for, a foreign um, government trying to dominate the Islamic world. And they had a lot of support. They created the fall. And actually, Al-Qaeda actually had a lot to play as well uh, during, during those times. Um, but if you look at the kind of relationship that they had back in the day and how things shifted rapidly over time, it's quite an interesting pattern. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, the reason why the Taliban is so sophisticated uh, and has been sophisticated and managed to do what they've done in LU, spot on, it is it would be elusive to think that they're completely these barbaric individuals who don't know what they're doing, is they have a lot of support. I mean, the Taliban will train by, some of them will train by Pakistani intelligence. These guys know their stuff. They're really good. They know exactly how to organize things, but let's also not forget that the, the souring relationship between them has, 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 has occurred as well. So in the same token, uh, the, the Taliban kind of plays a smooth, a smooth scenario where they say, well, you know, um, they've always been perceived in two areas. One group, one camp sees the Taliban as these completely uh, uh, extreme Islamic group, which frankly they are, uh, and others see them as, as heroes. Uh, in in their in, in in Afghanistan, 
So you have two camps, you have those who see them as liberators and others who see them as uh, extreme groups, extremist groups. Realistically, we know that they're extremist groups, uh, uh, but in the same token, um, they have a lot, a lot of support. Uh, uh, and this is from the back end of the, of the Soviet Union uh, and, and actually the success that they've had to contribute towards their, them leaving Afghanistan. So they have a lot of following. And, 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 and that's to be taken into account. So um, the difference with them and Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda is, is a Wahhabi um, organization. And the intent, their aim was to unite all Muslims around the world in a global jihad. Uh, and of course, uh, the intent was as well to contribute towards uh, overthrowing the, the Soviet, Soviet Union. But then it started to kind of focus a lot on us, the West. And the reason why it started to focus more on the West was because they started to believe that uh, you should go beyond the Soviet Union. You should attack all the superpowers, all those who, who, who want to uh, impose their, their views that they believe uh, is, is contrary to their Sharia law, uh, to, the, to, their, to their, you know, global jihad. So uh, understanding that mentality is important because actually uh, this is where, for example, you look at ISIS and where ISIS came from. Um, and if you look at how these groups are really divided in, in most cases, they don't trust each other. They believe that uh, in some areas they do co collaborate. You look at the Al-Qaeda, for example, uh, uh, even Al-Qaeda Al saw, saw ISIS as ISIL, as, as a group that went a bit too far. They said, you guys are going way too far. We don't want to be in any way affiliated to you guys. You have to understand the mind of of, 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 of terrorists uh, and put yourself sometimes in the shoes and how they perceive each other as well. So they did not trust uh, ISIL and they saw them as, you know, these, these guys are going way too far. Uh, we should distance from, our, from, from them. Uh, the Taliban also said, so, well, you know what, uh, you know, let's monitor these guys, but let's kind of keep a distant relationship. And eventually they realized that, you know what, we don't agree with the, the way they portray Islam. We're going to, uh, 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 operate in a way that if they actually come anywhere near us, we're going to hurt them too. So it was a very uh, messy situation. Imagine being uh, a, a, just a mother, a father, uh, a, a child, and you're in the midst of all this. You know, it's really complicated. Um, the reality is this, is that uh, the, the, the Taliban right now, if you look at the Taliban, if you look at Al-Qaeda, if you look at ISIL, among them all, obviously ISIS has been the big focus. We're still pushing that forward. We're still fighting uh, and finding ways to, to keep them at bay. And realistically, although they've been hit hard and, and if you look at it strategically, they're not as strong as they used to be, they're still capable. The Taliban are trying to show that, hey, look, we're, we're kind of the best of all. We're not perfect, we're, we're, we're messed up, if I can use the term overtly. But uh, among them all, who else, who would you want to collab with to, to say, you know, we've got stability, you know, we, we want to show you guys that we're not total, total barbarians. We, we do uh, care about our women and children. We do care about our, our, our elderly. And, uh, you know, I know in the past they say that we've made a lot of, uh, done a lot of things that are very extreme, but we believe that this is the law of Islam and this is the law of the land. But, however, we're going to do our best to be more accommodating. So uh, give us a shot. That's what they're trying to say, show the world. I think, I think the concern that, that we have when we look at this, uh, and we should all have as Westerners look at this, is actually can, they, can we negotiate with them? Can we actually come to the, to the same to a table where we can talk about human rights? And even from the UN point of view, people are thinking, well, what can we do about this? Is there any way we can actually, well, if we're just keeping it, just observing, say, let's see where this goes. Uh, but I think strategically, if you look at it, if you want to come to a negotiating table and show that you're, you're open to discuss, it doesn't really, if I had, if I, having military presence and not fulfilling our end of the bargain and saying that we're going to leave would actually be difficult to enable us to sit down on the same table and say, well, hey, look, I want to give you guys, if you guys agree to actually not repeat certain patterns of behaviors of the past, then we'll, we'll be open to consider actually negotiating and, and, and actually and so forth. So I think there's, there's, there's a pattern right now where we're trying to be cautious with the Taliban, 
we're also holding them extremely accountable in every way. But the reality is the Taliban are very sophisticated and it's, it would be immature to believe that they don't have a lot of support, uh, especially on a strategic sense. And you're totally right, Elliot, they have a lot of support and they're very smart strategically. Thank you for listening to this episode of K Voices. This series focuses on finding decisive solutions to critical problems. If your business, your organization, or yourself face a similar problem, please reach out to find out how we can work together. If you have a skill, talent, or zeal for solving problems, K Enterprises would be thrilled to know more about you. You can get in touch by writing an email to team at kenterprises.biz. This is your host, Thomas Brancato, and I hope you are as eager to listen to our next episode as I am to host it. Thank you once again, and I wish each of you a great day.